Thank you, Leah and Will. We appreciate you all so much sharing your gifts uh, with us. It's, uh, it's, it makes us proud. If you have your Bibles, find Acts, please. Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read uh, verses 14 through 18 from Acts 2. We do begin, as uh, Charlie mentioned a few minutes ago, a new series today that will continue through the month, and the title of it is The Cult of True Womanhood, and I hope that will make sense in just a few minutes. Acts 2, beginning in verse 14. This, of course, is the day of Pentecost. It's the, the, church, is, is the, the church is moments old. The Holy Spirit had come rushing into that upper room and those 120 had been filled with the Spirit with this new kind of power, un unprecedented, unseen. And in that moment, the church was born. Just a few moments later, Peter uh, preaches the first sermon ever preached in church. And this is what he says. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. They, there had been this big commotion, this big hubbub, and people had gathered to see what was going on. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning after all. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. <clears throat> Get that, this is what was spoken eight centuries early, earlier by the prophet Joel. In the last days, the days after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And those are just two poetic ways of saying the same thing. Even on my servants, both men and women, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I love learning about the history of this uh, city I so love, and <clears throat> I learned a couple of weeks ago about something that happened in 1895 at the old City Hall. City Hall set in 1895 at the corner of Washington and Clinton Streets. And on January the 29th, 1895, the auditorium of the old city hall was packed. They were there to hear a lineup of big time speakers. The most famous, Susan B. Anthony, the famous uh, champion of suffrage, of women's suffrage. Susan B. Anthony, right here in Huntsville, Alabama. It was a controversial event. In the days leading up to Susan B. Anthony's speech at the old city hall, Huntsville had been a beehive of activity and a hotbed of opinion. Men's fears and chauvinism came up against uh, women's dreams and their rights as citizens. Everybody had an opinion, including the newspapers, and there was more than one newspaper then. The Huntsville Weekly Mercury, in their editorial, said that, that women folks shouldn't be, shouldn't be interested in politics. That if women were to vote, the editorial said, it would rob them of their feminism. 
It would be as unfeminine, the editorial said, as women riding bicycles. Yes, women voting would be as shameful, as unfeminine as women riding bicycles. What happened in Huntsville was part of a long, a long-standing struggle. Since the mid-1800s, thoughtful Americans were fighting the cult of true womanhood. The cult of true womanhood was a common phrase in the mid-1800s. It referred to the notion that women should know their place, that they shouldn't worry their pretty little heads about business and politics and that sort of thing, that women should serve their husbands if they had them, they should take care of their children if they had them, if not, they should at least know their place in society. The cult of true womanhood. Women were calling from the mid-1800s for equal rights in a number of areas. The right to own property, the right to inherit property, the opportunity for a good education, and yes, the right to vote. The right to vote came in 1919 when the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives passed the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment in 1919 gave women the right to vote. It said that states could not discriminate by gender when it came to voting. But because it was a, 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 a uh, uh, something that kind of, uh, it was a new thing, because it was a new thing, <laughs> three-fourths of the states had to ratify it. Amendment, that's what, <laughs> that's what I was trying to think of. Because it was an amendment, three-fourths of the states had to ratify it. So state after state began to ratify the amendment, and then it came just up the road to Tennessee. So that the, the, the state that put us over the edge, that over the tipping point, that made it three-fourths was Tennessee. But it, it almost didn't pass in Tennessee. It passed by a solitary vote. They were tied until it came down to the last vote, Mr. Harry T. Byrne. It was August 18. 1920, almost exactly a century ago. Almost exactly a century ago, Harry T. Byrne cast the deciding vote to ratify the 19th Amendment, and women now were free to vote in America. Harry T. Byrne later said he voted to ratify the amendment because his mama told him to. Smart smart man. So those women who had gathered in 1895, those who were still living, 25 years later, had the privilege of voting for the first time. It's embarrassing, but some of the opposition to the women's vote came from churches. In the early 1900s, for example, and by the way, Nancy Rohr, who's a local historian, has written about this, and I, I know most of what I know from what she's written. In the early 1900s, Reverend H.C. Hurley of Jasper Baptist Church wrote a pamphlet suggesting that women should, and I'm quoting him now, stay home and keep quiet. And I can just about guarantee you that every Christian man who heard that in his heart, not out loud, said, Amen. Nancy Rohr also noted, no church, no church supported the women. Travis, why such a long history lesson about suffrage? 
Well, remember, we're talking about the cult of true womanhood. The, the idea in the mid-1800s that women should know their place, that, that they shouldn't worry their pretty little heads about property and business and voting. That, 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 that those things were too manly. And literally, they said that women are too delicate to worry about those sorts of things. But Travis, those things are past. We, we don't think it's unfeminine to ride bicycles anymore. We're, we're progressive. We're beyond that. Well, are we really? Are we really? A prominent TV preacher whose name you would know if I were to mention it, in the mid-1900s, or early 1900s, or 1990s, and 1992 specifically, had the national political ambitions, and he sent out a national letter uh, to his supporters about the Equal Rights Amendment. He described the move for women's rights as, and I'm quoting him now, a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. Now, radical feminism does include in its agenda uh, the right for abortion, unfortunately. But, but does calling for equal rights for women really encourage them to practice, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians? I don't think so. Oh, but Travis, that was 1992. We've come a long way since 1992. Well, in 2012, another American pastor whom I often hear quoted said this, the God-given sense of responsibility for leadership in a mature man, hear that, the God-given sense of leadership in a mature man, so God has wired man to want to lead, will not generally allow him to flourish long under personal directive leadership of a female supervisor. So God has wired men with the gift and desire to lead and and so he will not flourish long under the direct supervision of a woman. And he gave two examples. One is in the military. So somebody in the military would not flourish. A man would not because he has this God-given desire and ability to lead. And, and so he could not flourish under a woman a superior officer. The second example he gave, interestingly to me at least, was a baseball umpire. Now would it take some getting used to to... If you and I were to go to a baseball game and see a woman behind the plate calling balls and strikes, it would. But it would hardly be a sin. The things you all sometimes say to them might be, but it wouldn't be a sin for the umpire to be a woman. The cult of true womanhood. And then there's the debate, sometimes heated, about women's place and role in the church. In FBC Huntsville, we have women ministers, we have women deacons. Sometimes a woman will preach, we have women who perform baptisms. And FBC Huntsville has undergone a good deal of criticism over the years for that thing. So for a month in this centennial celebration of, of suffrage, we're going to talk about women in the Bible. What does the Bible say about women? What are, who are the women, some of the women in the Bible? We're going to talk about uh, the place of women in the home and in the church and in society. Let's begin with Genesis, with a broad sweep of Scripture. We come, of course, first to the Garden of Eden, and there we find Adam and Eve, equal in every way. Both bear the image of God. 
To each was given dominion or the the right and, and responsibility to manage the world. It is true that God saw Adam and said, it is not good for him to be alone. I'll give him a helper. Genesis 2.18. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Interestingly though, the the word helper is an English translation of the Hebrew word ezer. We're going to talk more about this when we talk about the family. By the way, I'm I'm going to send out uh, in the messenger my email for women to submit ideas when I talk about the family, I think that ought to be really interesting to get some ideas. I'm just kidding about that. I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare do that. <laughs> so God says, I will provide an easer for him. Time and time again in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word easer is used to describe the creator of the universe. In situations where humans were in such a predicament that they couldn't get their way out of it. And so God comes as the easer as the protector and provider for humans who can't help themselves. So we could rightly interpret Genesis 2.18 as man, it's not good for man to be alone. I will send a protector and provider for him. Again, more about that when we talk about marriage. Then came the fall, the the disobedience, the, the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And in that moment, that that mysterious moment, evil came rushing into the world and everything changed, including the relationship between Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.16 says that with the fall came the introduction of inequality and contention between men and women. Genesis 3.16 reads, to the woman God said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. For the foreseeable future, men would have, many men at least, would have this unusual desire to to rule over women. And women would have this longing for an emotional intimacy with men that would seem elusive too often. And the combination of those, the woman's desire for emotional intimacy and the man's desire on the part of so many to rule over the women would result and still results in in women who domineer and, and even abuse their wives and partners. That was not part of God's plan. That's a result of evil coming rushing into the world. The nation of Israel is born, and throughout the Old Testament, the husband's rulership over his wife is not questioned, it's assumed. But God would not let that stand forever. God patiently accommodated himself to this world, this patriarchal, male-dominated world that he so desperately wanted to reach, but he would not let it stand forever. And he would send hints every once in a while He would hint that this is not my ideal and this is not the way it always will be. He sent prophetesses, Miriam, Noadiah, Huldah, the wife of Isaiah, Deborah. Deborah, who was not only a prophetess, but was a judge. We're going to talk about her next week. A judge, the political and spiritual leader of all Israel. So God accommodated himself to that patriarchal culture, but he kept sending these women along to say, it's not always going to be like this. And then, and then came Joel, eight centuries before Jesus. God gave Joel a new kind of message. In Joel 2, 
God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Eight centuries after Joel, Jesus came. Jesus came to write our, our vertical relationship with God between holy God and sinful humanity. But he came to make right our horizontal relationships too, including the relationships between men and women. And the way Jesus treated women, as Mandy said, was so different from what they knew. He elevated them to an unprecedented status in the Jewish world. Women traveled with Jesus. Luke 8 says women financially supported Jesus and his friends. When Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, it was scandalous. Men didn't speak to women in public. When Jesus let that woman pour oil on his feet and wash his feet with her hair, it was scandalous. Men and women didn't touch in public. Women traveled with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. He paid attention to women. Women sat at his feet. Women wept at his cross. And God gave to women the opportunity to make the, the greatest announcement, to herald the best news ever heralded to humanity. And that is that Jesus was dead on Friday, but he was alive on Sunday. He gave that to women, unprecedented. By the time Jesus ascended, the gender equality train had left the station. By the time Jesus ascended, the gender equality cat was out of the bag. By the time Jesus ascended, the USS gender equality had sailed. By the time Jesus ascended, the gender equality genie was out of the bottle and she would not go back. Ten days after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit came rushing into that upper room and the church was born. Peter stood to preach the first sermon in church. And he said, this is the day. This is the day that Joel was talking about 800 years ago. And he quoted him. It's a new day. And God's spirit is, is pouring out on men and women. And they both will prophesy. The early churches reflected this new day. Phoebe was a deacon in the church at Centria. Deacon. And Romans 16 describes her role such that she, was, she had some kind of, of managerial or, or oversight role in the church. The church moved from, from the Middle East where they had conservative views on male-female relationships, northern, northwestward into Asia Minor, and then over into Europe where they had more progressive views of women. And so in those churches, women's names keep popping up as associated with the new church plants in homes. Names like Aphia, Nympha, Priscilla, Lydia, and Chloe. Junia deserves special mention because Romans 16, 7 says she is outstanding among the apostles. Junia was an apostle, not one of the original 12, an itinerant missionary with all the responsibilities and all the privileges and all the authority 
that came with being an ambassador for the Lord. Now, with that, all that said, with the grand sweep of Scripture, should women be facing a glass ceiling where they work? Of course not. Should husbands and wives not love, serve, and submit to each other? Of course they should. Should women have a secondary role in the church? Of course they should not. And I have to ask, should women submit themselves to domineering husbands who hear even in their churches that they're supposed to domineer and take that as an excuse? Should women have to live like that? Of course they should not. So God bless women and God, thank God for women and more power to women. As I turn home, let's return to the topic of women's suffrage. The first major event in that movement was in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York. Large gathering of women and a few male allies. They talked about education. They talked about property ownership. They talked about business. But the focal point of the movement became the right to vote. It was 1848. Do you remember when the 19th Amendment was ratified? It was in 1920, 72 years later. It's likely that there is not a woman at that 1848 meeting in Seneca Falls who ever saw the right to vote, but they kept at it. They didn't quit. Susan B. Anthony was 75 years old when in 1895 she came to Huntsville to speak. She died in 1906, 14 years before women got to vote. But they kept at it. They didn't quit. There's a lesson there. I hope you believe in and are part of a cause that's bigger than you. And I hope you won't quit. Remember Wilbur, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce is credited with the abolition of slavery in England. But it didn't come easily and it didn't come quickly. For 40 years, William Wilberforce wrote letters. He pleaded with political foes and friends alike. He circulated petitions. He gave speeches. He paid a high price for his willingness uh, to fight slavery. He was dismissed by some, demonized by others. His character was assaulted, his life was threatened, his health suffered for 40 years. It was 22 years before he even got a hearing before Parliament. But then he was rebuffed. He kept going back. He kept getting rebuffed. Until in 1833, 40 years after, he began his crusade for the abolition of slavery. The British Parliament finally passed the law making it illegal to own and to traffic human beings. William Wilberforce died three days later. I hope you are part of a cause, a God-given cause, that's bigger than you. When Wilberforce was 28 years old in 1787, he entered the following into his diary. 
God Almighty has placed before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. And he wouldn't quit. Galatians 6, 9 reads, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Please hear these last words. Jesus elevated the status of women because he loves us all equally. He raised them to an unprecedented place in society because he loves us all equally. And if your heart longs to know your value and to have your value recognized, whether you are a boy or a girl or a man or a woman, I invite you to Jesus. I invite you to the cross where the ground is completely level. And when we finish after our closing prayer and after the song that Esther will play, I'm going to hang around down here if you want to talk about what it means to know Jesus or to be part of our church. And I will wait on you.